It's so dark and I've been here for days. Wait, I see two forms in the distance. Two women. Oh, yeah. Here we go, baby. I'm ready for another one. Are you ready for another one, Adam? I'm really re- If you're going to sing, I'm really ready for it. Oh, it's Director Peace Theater. It's, <laughs> it really is. You know. It really it's is. It's where we talk about, you know, having been directors, you yeah. know, like, what's up with directing, you know? Like, <laughs> that would be my that? definition. Yeah, what's up with that? So I'm Abe Epperson. I'm here with my co-host. Adam Ganser. Uh, Thanks for being here. Yeah, everyone. Yeah, yeah. So if you clicked on today's episode, uh, you are ready for some for some Roland Emmerich, uh, <laughs> the the master of bombast. Uh, <sighs> right? How many times have you what? watched this movie? This particular one? Twice, twice, maybe three. Did you watch it in the maybe theater? Three. No, no. I, I think I've seen it twice. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely didn't see it in theater. Yeah. Did you think it was dumb when it came out? Like 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 when you watch trailers were you like that's dumb? Yes. Yeah. Now uh, rewatching it it's not as dumb because Roland Emmerich has outdumbed himself and other people <laughs> yeah, mimicked yeah. it. Like so he also did 2012 which is dumber. And he also did, uh, uh, or he didn't also do, but uh, we have since done stuff like Geostorm. Yeah, I know. know? I know, man. So it's like, we've gotten real dumb with this genre, so it actually isn't as dumb as some of, yeah, that's all I wish to say. No, I agree. I mean, that's certainly going to be the starting point for our discussion, uh, is because this is about the day after tomorrow. Uh, I'm hoping that we can kind of recover a little bit of our memory about how we felt about the film uh, and still kind of hold that intention with the way it actually is now. Uh, Because one thing you have to remember about Roland Emmerich in particular is that this like, you know, epic disaster genre, which existed before him, he's kind of the master of it, right? Like he's, he has, right. Yeah. Uh, it's kind In the of same his... way that like James Cameron has cut like a swath yeah. of like action movie. There's like action movies and there's like James Cameron action movies. Mm-hmm. He is definitely made like you know when you're watching a Roland Emmerich film and they all kind of look and feel the same way. Yeah. And he's done so many of them at this point and they've kind of had amazing success. Uh, you know, Independence Day, obviously. Uh that's the big one. Uh but also so I mean, just to like get right into it. Uh, he went on a roll that was uh, a pretty impressive catalog of films for about 10 years. And it started with Stargate, uh, which is a little different than the rest of his movies, but also still Love a it. very fun. Love it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I almost did a, an episode of this, how that was sort of a Spielberg film, like him trying to do a Spielberg film. Uh, mm. Cause it feels like that, but he kind of pivoted to I think the mainstay of what Roland Emmerich's going to be remembered for, which is this like epic disaster genre. After that, with Independence Day, um, and then he was brought on to Godzilla. He sort of rescued that project. I'm going to put "rescued" in quotes. He took that project over after there was some tension with Jan de Bont, and uh, saw that all the way through. And then he made The Patriot with Mel Gibson, which is kind of a Braveheart, you know, a B side of Braveheart. And then he followed that up lightning in the with, bottle again, right? Isn't that what it is? Isn't it B side Braveheart? Yeah, it's absolutely what it is. It's not. It's like it's like 
Braveheart light. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's not as good. But equally as long. Like, we're going to take the same amount to give you a lukewarm <laughs> version of Braveheart. It's microwave Braveheart. I, I completely agree with that. Uh, mm. But it's the same beats. I mean, like, it's clearly not trying to be... It's it's not it's not uh, carving any new territory. Whereas I would argue that, in some ways, Independence Day, Godzilla, and this movie, The Day After Tomorrow, are all kind of pushing a genre forward. That epic disaster genre. Okay. Forward. All right. Um, I'm ready for this journey. Man. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So I'm gonna jump right into it. So like, let's acknowledge right up top the thing that makes Roland Emmerich great is that he is a master of spectacle. Right, like his his movies mm-hmm. up to that point, and in some ways maybe even still, are like the pinnacle of like destruction on a mass scale, right? Like certain, yeah. certainly there's been like Marvel movies and stuff that have like no, rivaled it, but I feel like you watch these movies he's and they're the still creator. like, oh my god, we're destroying everything kind of vibe to yeah, it. Yeah, he's the creator of the blow up the thing. Yeah, uh, do do the Capitol building. Yeah. <laughs> Now do the Capitol yeah. building, man. Now yeah, exactly. That. Yeah. That's what he does. Yeah, uh, now do the pyramids. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's blowing it up. Uh, yeah. That is what he does. So, like, imagine in 2004 when you've had that much success doing this, uh, the pressure that you're under to make a movie like The Day After Tomorrow. Uh, because... Number one, he's got a he he probably feels an amount of pressure to deliver box office success. Uh even Godzilla, though it was kind of considered a box office disappointment, was still successful. And Stargate and Independence Day obviously were massive hits. Uh and they were massive zeitgeist movies. Like everybody remembers them. We all flocked to the theater to see them. They're summer um, movies, the, yeah. Yeah. This these They're were like built with the intention to print money. Yeah. He was, I mean, right? That's what he did. Uh, and that's mm-hmm. that's a certain kind of filmmaker. Not all filmmakers can do it. Um, it's one of the reasons why, for instance, Stanley Kubrick was such a huge fan of Steven Spielberg. Because he just admired how Spielberg was able to make successful movies financially consistently. That's right. He's like, you have the finger on the pulse of whatever the hell America is. Yeah, and and he was right. I mean, uh, and I think yeah. for at least 10, 15 years, Roland Emmerich also kind of had that pulse. So mm-hmm. he has to make a movie that sort of matches up to that expectation, right? So the expectation mm-hmm. being successful, a massive zeitgeist movie, and delivering destruction on the scale that we're accustomed to from Roland Emmerich. That's the expectation. Man, scale, baby. That's Roland Emmerich's game. Yeah, that's what he does, right? So... When you think about that, it's pretty clear that Roland Emmerich really cares about the climate change cause. And here's why I'm saying that. So, like, this movie comes out in 2004. That is before the movie Inconvenient Truth comes out, which is 2006. And I think it's fair to say that as in a public sort of group consciousness way, uh... Inconvenient Truth is the first time that we as moviegoers sort of were willing to hear stories or the the story of climate change and accept it. I think before that, there was a mixed feeling about it. Some people were like open to that, some people were not, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's so funny. We're still dealing with this problem. I mean, we are still, like, of course, there's still going to be people who are like, this is not real. But I I just don't wish to distract. We are 2000. 
six, two thousand four, right? Or two thousand four, two thousand six. Yeah. Right. That's like seventeen years ago uh, when this movie came out, the day after tomorrow, and fifteen years or whatever when Inconvenient Truth came out. But I think it's fair to say, like, the cultural uh, attitude toward this in media changed with Inconvenient Truth. Like I, that was, mm-hmm. I think, a perception changer. Um. So the fact that Roland Emmerich made a movie about this topic tells you how passionate he was about it because it was not an instant winner. You know, like it's not an alien destroying the, destroying the planet. It's not uh, a gigantic monster tearing through the city. Uh, it's not. It's us. Yeah. It's man. Right. Yeah. And it's also a diffuse, difficult concept to explain. Um, so he kind of took a lot on himself to move, to make this movie. Um, and I think if you, if you need any proof to show that sort of people writ large were not real, like ready to accept the premise of this movie, I think you can sort of go through and like skim critical responses and the pervasive <clears throat> sense that they thought it was silly uh, as yeah. not necessarily untrue, but as like they were very dismissive of the premise. You know, uh, they just weren't ready to accept the premise. And Roland Emmerich took kind of a big risk to take a move to make a movie about that. There's a lot of laughable aspects of it. The fact that it happens in like a few days, you know, like it's like and they're like so wrong. They're like 50 to 100 years. And then then the time that's where they start by saying like this is right. It's uh, alarmist, but like 50. Oh, no, it's like 50 to a thousand years. And then it turns into minutes six to eight weeks <laughs> yeah. and then then it becomes literally now yeah 50 minutes <laughs> and is it's all just you like got. oh okay they yeah. really jumped they they really jumped in on that uh that makes it feel silly it does even though you know some of the science behind it is like okay let's look at this. right 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 it i don't want to i do not want to go on record as saying this movie is not silly because it is mm-hmm. uh but mm-hmm. i think that you can still kind of get a feeling from the general response that not only is it silly, therefore we can't accept it. Because, like, honestly, every Alien movie is also silly. I think yes. it's silly, it's, like, we're yeah. not totally ready to accept the premise exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, like, even just this topic as a premise for a disaster movie, I don't think they were totally willing, ready to accept it. Um, also, <laughs> I think uh, he cared enough about the issue that he was willing to make specific, obvious political commentary uh, as a part of the story, like he very obviously cast an actor who was supposed to be a Dick Cheney stand-in and a, <laughs> Bush, right, yeah. a George Bush stand-in, uh, a thing that most movies just choose to not do. You know, like they they just choose not to comment on the current president. Uh, even during the Trump <laughs> era, they chose to do that. So the fact that he's like, I'm going to obviously make these analogs and stand-ins tells you he wants to make a point. This matters to him, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, also, he pu- he paid the he's, price for that. He's decision going for the jugular, the baby. Critical eye. I, they were not. Uh, they were not into that decision. So, look, right. <laughs> they didn't think that was good. Fair enough. So, like, if you're Roland Emmerich, and again, you're the bombaster of puppets, uh, you know, twisting your mind and shattering your scenes. How do you do a climate change movie and still do the mass destruction thing that you're known for? Like, this is a problem that he has, how to set up this premise uh, mm-hmm. and still deliver the action movie, and but not entirely violate the cause to do it. Um, that's the tension that he's in. And I think The Day After Tomorrow is his attempt to sort of reconcile those two things. And uh, I think it's fair to say that he made a flawed film because of that. Because those two passions, 
the the let's make a disaster movie spectacle and let's do a decent job with the actual climate change cause are kind mm-hmm. of uh, irreconcilable. Um, and I think there's moments when I watch this movie that I wish that Roland Emmerich had seen the movie Inconvenient Truth before he made this, because it might have made him more effective at setting up the premise, even of a silly movie like this, which, believe it or not, is kind of what I want to talk about. Just sort of how does Roland Emmerich approach setting up this climate change story and how does he do it like visually and narratively and just those elements? And like, is there anything storytelling wise that we could have learned from Inconvenient Truth that might have made his job easier? <clears throat> do you mean like uh, tactics or tech? Not like tactics wise ex- in storytelling? Almost exclusively tactics. Almost exclusively. Yeah. Because your methodology for like proving a point. Yes. If you have persuasion. a thesis statement, getting us to your thesis statement. Correct. Correct. Like that. Like I. I want to talk basically about how does he set up this premise uh, to do a fiction film about this subject, and just knowing that Inconvenient Truth is right around the same time, like a couple years later, what other storytelling tactics we can learn about how to set up this story that may have improved his movie or that may have made his movie stand the test of time as a more serious endeavor a little better. Although I'm happy to say now, mm-hmm. when I watched it now, I did not find it laughable like I probably would have in 2004. Like, I took it right. a little more seriously now. So I think maybe Zeitgeist alone helps this movie. What do you do? You think of that? Like, the, that is true or no? Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't call it Zeitgeist as much as, like, historical perspective. Yeah, yeah fair uh, enough. We know the reality of, like, there's a line that uh, Quaid says at one point, which is, like, our children will be feeling the ramifications of this. And it's kind of, like, it's grandiose because what he's saying in that moment is, like, we're they're going to have a complete climate change. But for us, relatively, we see all of the, you know, like, every summer killing the previous summer in terms of the records of heat right. or right. droughts and we see it formulating and it's not bad yet and it isn't as fast yet right but it's still bad yeah and it's not trending in the right direction right. so we're like the proof is in the pudding it becomes all too real now once we start seeing the slow kind of burning of the frog in the in the pot you know like we realize it's kind of hellish the daunting dread that we have about this issue, which I think at this point, even just, you know, 10 years ago ish, you know, like we're talking about, like they didn't have that kind of perspective. So it isn't as dread inducing. Right. Cause it, it they, is more effective. They didn't feel it. Yet. Yeah. It is more effective in 2021 probably than it was in 2004. Like, you know, just, I think, Period. Because of our historical perspective. I think that's absolutely absolutely Mm -hmm. accurate. Um, I I just want to go... But Jake Gyllenhaal fighting wolves is funny. Yeah, that (laughs) the wolves are completely indefensible. I fucking Uh, love the wolves. I thought they were absurd. Uh, They're absurd. They're great. Right. They're great for the dumb reason. I totally agree. Now, look... But yeah, you were pointing out like the ridicule, the difference in the ridicule. Like why we laugh at it. Yeah. Yeah. Very nuanced thing you're doing I'm going to be walking a little bit of a tightrope here. 
I, I, <laughs> I understand that people are probably instantly going, wait a minute, you can't compare Inconvenient Truth with uh, Day After Tomorrow because Inconvenient Truth is a documentary. I completely agree with that. I'm not talking... You're not comparing it as much as saying... Well, okay, I, I'll let you I, thank you for thank you for just rising up to defend me, you beautiful man. Uh, yeah, you know, man, I, I see what you're yeah, doing. Yeah, I appreciate that. So just to clarify one more time. So like I'm using just visual tactics of Inconvenient Truth because I think it's a persuasive visual story that it tells and saying like what elements of that might have helped day after tomorrow to be more compelling on the topic. That's the idea. Uh, because as you'll see, they sort of go fly in the face of the bombastic storyteller, which is what Roland Emmerich is committed to being. So to start, I think the first major point I want to make is that we have a major contrast between the two films. And one of them is that there is a, the power of dramatization of this kind of content versus the power of a graph uh, for expositing what we, yes. how to explain to the audience how climate change works. Okay. Because there's two different approaches. So, you know, just, you know this, but just run through it very quickly. The Day After Tomorrow chooses to make a fictional, dramatized story about climate change. Uh, and so, and that's how it's going to tell you all the facts you need to know about climate change. And Inconvenient Truth is like, we're going to give you data and stats. So, because Emmerich is a fiction storyteller, one of the things that he probably feels in his bones, because most directors do, is you never want to make your audience have to read or watch an analytical piece of data that is like antithetical to fiction storytelling because the core engine of fiction storytelling is emotional. This is a thing we talk about all the time on this podcast. Now, I don't want to say that that's not true of documentaries because it is, but documentaries often approach uh, like their subjects more analytically to get their emotional content, and we sort of understand that about them. So we're willing to sort of go down that road as a as an experience. Um, so they are both fundamentally emotional, but like movies, you're not going to stand there and read a big pile of text. You're never going to do that. In fact, it's such a problem that movies in this day and age are constantly trying to find ways to make you not have to look at things that are blocks of text, such as... Always. Yeah, always. always such that. as... Except for the silent era where they couldn't right. tell you. Well, they, but as soon as they could, they got they ditched it, right? Like Then it was all talkies all, all the time. All talkies all the time. Yeah, they didn't go backwards. So, like, this is why we have so many shows trying to find interesting ways to show you smartphone apps and text messages. So, like, if you watch a movie now... Sure. If you're looking at an actual screen, reading a piece of text or looking at an app, I that's probably a... That's a very uh, slim percentage chance that's happening because that's a boring way to consume that. So what you often see more regularly now in films is like uh, overlap graphics on screen or text being written on screen as the character's typing it so that you get not only the information, but also the emotional experience of the person creating it. Um, this is why shows like House of Cards or Sherlock have tried very hard to create visual motifs to make that aspect of storytelling more engaging. And now it's pretty pervasive. Um, I can't remember the last current movie that had a screenshot of an actual phone screen. Yeah. So yeah. Roland Emmerich then has this challenge where he has to uh, communicate a lot of data, like data that's like pretty texty and like factual, uh, but he has to do it through scenes. So what does he do? He 
creates an accelerated ice age uh, to basically outline the kinds of results we might see from uh, climate change, right? So that that's how he chooses to approach this issue. Uh, and that, of course, is going to include tornadoes and uh, freezing helicopters and, like, biblical plague-style hail and the most important thing, a tidal wave that destroys the city of New York uh, mm-hmm. because if he doesn't destroy New York, we have not Roland Emmerich. <laughs> so, like, yeah, that's true. So he has to <laughs> he has true. to dramatize this stuff instead of explaining it to us for us to experience the uh, emotions of it. So this is why in the first act he has to kind of jump between all these little various ramping up uh, vignettes to kind of communicate the different aspects of climate change in a way that we can palette. So like that means in the opening sequence, in order to communicate, the glaciers are falling apart. There's an Arctic shelf, right? And like we're losing water. In order to communicate that, we have cliffhanger on the Arctic shelf, right? Like that's the first scene. Uh, And then like we follow that with, essentially a climate summit uh, where the world leaders are skeptical. So we kind of get to dump exposition and we get one single graphic. The only graphic that actually explains in any visual way, what is going on in like in the world, the science, of yeah, it the all. science of it all. Yeah. We get one graphic exactly. and it has to be done. In it's this... just, it's little arrows on an ocean. Yeah, right. And therefore you have to have all these world leaders. I'm sorry. Did you say globe climate change? Cause I thought we were worried Fucking about warming. You know, we get those guys. Yeah. yeah that's my favorite. Yeah. That's my favorite. Right. Gr- wait. So is it global colding now? <laughs> right. He has to do uh, that. Right. Well, and those lines only, ex- again, Roland Emmerich's also the screenwriter of this. So, like, this is... He has to do this because he has to do the actual data work. He has to explain it to us. And uh, the audience doesn't know the difference. Probably In 2004, they don't know the difference between global warming and climate change. So he needs a person mm-hmm. to, to yell that at Dennis Quaid so that he can explain it to you. So he can say it's the difference. Right. <laughs> now, like, just as a whole, to step all the way back and, like, think about this approach to making us feel the reality of glow of climate change. Like there is something about destroying New York city with a tidal wave that is, uh, terrifying. Like it's, it's, it's a very awe inspiring spectacle and it, it does create a certain kind of dread that I think is effective. Uh, like I don't, I don't think that people are cheering for the tidal wave in the theater. I think they're like, like, Oh my God. You know, like it's, it's very, uh, sobering, but it's, Yes, but it's still a facsimile, and people yes, know Yes, I that. agree, and so, that's the thing. You should, yeah. Let's talk about that at the end of this episode, because I think that's a really important yeah. point. Because what you're going to ask, and you're right, is like, but is it truly effective? And I think that's a totally valid question. Um, the, other pe- like the other upside to Roland Emmerich's approach here is that he uses, because he's dramatization, like he's doing dramatization, he uses family relationships to help us imagine personal contact points with the impact of climate change. Mm -hmm. So like we can imagine losing our son in New York, right? Or we can imagine Mm -hmm. having a sick relative in a hospital who can't get out. Or we can imagine, you know, uh, our our uncle dying in a bus or whatever, you know? Uh, yeah, that's it's what film movies are great yes. at, which is emotionally resonating something with you. Correct, and I would say Jake Gyllenhaal's experience overall is pretty moving. 
Um, and it is, yeah, it's pretty he, scary. He's good. Yeah. He's good. And, uh, you know, at the end, I, I think that we agree. Ice ages are mostly chill negative by the time we're done watching <laughs> this experience. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah, for real, man. Yeah. <laughs> for real, man. Ice ages <laughs> suck, bro. Uh, yeah. You heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> Breaking news. Ice ages are bad. But I love the foreshadowing that they do with the uh, woolly mammoth. I like, like that too. His, they, they were like, he had his, there's food still in his belly. He froze and instantly. That he froze instantly. Yeah, yeah. Cut to helicopters freezing instantly. And I thought that was a cool invention of this film. Like, it, like I, right. I, don't, I don't know that I would say invention entirely, but like that was a cool aspect of, I, of this uh experience that the film capitalized it was on was cool it was chill positive it was chill positive man. yeah very positive for chill uh so there's that now what i want to add to this is so that's the approach emmerich takes but i want to take a look at something from inconvenient truth as sort of a contrasting point and that is inconvenient truth i think proved visually graphs can be very dramatic um i think that's probably the most standout fact about that documentary is like they made very dramatic use of graphs. The best one, of course, being Al Al Gore's CO2 graphic where he like, you know, shows the history of temperature and CO2. And then he climbs on that giant lift and shows our carbon like spiking way the hell up there. And again, that's a very bombastic decision for a documentary. Like, let's not m- minimize that. It's very much a drama storytelling moment. But like, the graph tells everything. You're like, you just look right. at the graph. At that like, moment, oh my god! All of America and witnessing that moment. Like, I got a serious hard on for graphs now. <laughs> <laughs> I got that graph. No, no you're not wrong yeah. though. They can be compelling because if you are expecting like what's great about it also is that the setup is is like it's set up like a TED talk, mm-hmm. if I mm-hmm. recall, right? So it's like mostly, yeah. It seems like Al Gore's gonna just you know, mind numbingly tell you about like where what the science is because he's like, let's you know, that was this whole deal. And uh then he shows you something that's so dramatic that you go like, Whoa, yeah, that can't be good. Yeah, that looks you very know, and bad. that's all it really is. Yeah. That's all it really is. It's just like look at the difference between these lines. It's like simple elementary school shit. It really is, and yet I think it sort of tells you that if the information being presented is dramatic enough. And guys, the climate change information is definitely dramatic enough. The facts are actually more powerful as emotional content uh, for their own sake than they are as drama fodder. Like the drama fodder actually reduces the impact of the facts. Uh, And I think that's something that we learned from this documentary. Um. It's rare, but there are times that an analytical tool like a graph, like an actual spreadsheet or something, can be more powerful than a scene in which it's explained tensely to world leaders. Right? Like, and it's not like they have to. Have- I agree for a. Yeah. I'll, I'll wait. I'll keep this till the end, too. No, go ahead. You can I make it. Right go ahead. Make the point. Right. I'm interested. Go ahead. Um. I think that you're right for 2006 to you right. know 2012, right. 14. Now information doesn't have – like it had this wonderful time where like I felt like some of the people were listening, uh, but not really because then people just fought the facts. 
you know, yes. like this, now we have a disinformation situation where it's like, okay, so now they don't, not even that's compelling. They just dis- want to disagree. A- but that has entirely different, that has to deal with the politics of learning, I guess. Good Lord. And it's... It's just something that I think it affects both the storytelling in this case of inconvenient truth more so because it's prevalent on factual information being like the setup and like therefore when the awe happens, when the lean forward moment quote end quote like is basically done and designed around this is all true, that is absolutely nullified and to much less extent, but also day after tomorrow, it's just like, yeah, yeah, it's just make them up speed. And it's all based off lies. Anyway, people can say this shit and get away with it. And it's like, Oh, fuck that. For sure. But you know, whatever. I'm not here to say day after tomorrow needs to be fought for from a righteous factual perspective. I'm just saying the way in which we, uh, media influences us seems to be in flux to such an extent that your point is very well made, but it seems to be less and less true as time goes on too. Because, because now we have a problem of, uh, will the audience accept the premise on like a meta level period? Yeah, uh, which, exactly. which storytelling tactics are not going to fix for the most part. Get around. Yeah. No, yeah. but from, and, and you're absolutely right. And that's uh, that is a part of the climate change conversation. A hundred percent. But I still think that if the audience is amenable to a statement of facts, like enough that they'll listen, that I, I think that inconvenient truth, the simplicity of some of these uh, visual representations, like of data, like they really did a nice job with that. And it mm-hmm. could be incorporated into fictionalization. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I think I think Roland Emmerich could have shown us graphs, could have shown us uh, actual data in a compelling way that would have felt more authentic than uh, doing it through kind of a well-trod narrative territory that's, you know, mm-hmm. just people saying the facts instead of seeing them on screen. You know, so I kind of like Inconvenient Truth yeah. as a rebuttal yeah. for visual aids. It's a different tactic that's yeah. also very effective. Yeah. I th- I mean, in some ways um, more effective, I, I think you can yeah. argue. So next I want to transition into, so how does Roland Emmerich actually emotionally prepare you for the big moments which are meant to make us like wow man climate change uh so like specifically how does he prepare you for the tidal wave rolling through new york city or the tornadoes rolling through los angeles i think those are like the two Mm -hmm. big things uh that sort of represent moving toward this is happening now um to do this he uses some really great directorial tactics one of them is uh, he creates a kind of language through lens choice and motion. So in this movie, until he gets to like the big reveals, he uses a lot of mid-range and long lenses uh, to facilitate the exposition. And what I mean by that is he's on like a 50 maybe to like maybe a 75 to 100, like he's in that range. Uh, and what that does is it lets it, as you guys know now, probably it compresses the space a little bit, which gives us foreground and background elements. And you'll see this all throughout closer together yes, and yeah. they're closer together. Right. So it sort of smashes stuff together and you'll notice what he does using those things is then he begins to create motion in front of and behind the subject constantly. He's constantly, um, making things move in front of or behind the uh, character on screen 
Why? Because he's implying the threats, the storms, the weather are behind and in front of you. They're they're right next to you, and they're already in motion, right? So there's a sense of foreboding. Like you really feel it during the exposition scenes. You really feel it during like the hail scene or like the rain stuff mm-hmm. that leads up to the tidal wave. Uh, yeah, there's a lot. Of I that. noticed it too. Like our subjects are standing still. Everyone yes. else is right, around. which again is a really good metaphor. You have like your you yeah. your character standing still, but the weather is swirling around them I like see. it's a storm, yeah. and that's cool. You know, what I mean that's a, that's a really cool filmmaker. If you're gonna do something, you know, yeah. for sure. Um, so again, like the combined effect here is to visually represent the threat, so that instead of seeing instead of it being explained conceptually, he tries to visualize it, which is what a good director would do. Uh, it also has the effect that like the steady cam and dark night has, which is kind of like the story's moving forward. The story feels sort of inevitable, like it's all going to happen, and like the characters are sort of scrambling to keep up the whole time. He creates that effect through these visual tropes. Um, now this all shifts when we get to the tidal wave, the tidal wave, and to some degree the tornadoes. We move away from these long lenses and these lateral movements into wide lenses, right? So now we're talking mm-hmm. about like, not to a warping degree, but probably like, you know, 1825, like pretty big wide angle lenses. So you can see the whole spectacle. And perhaps most importantly, we start to get a lot more clear action on the Z axis, meaning straight at camera, right? Most of the death scenes that happen specifically with the tidal wave happen on the Z axis, people getting run over Mm -hmm. cars, rolling over people drowning in the bus as they're seeing it happen in the rear view mirror. Right? So now instead of the storm swirling around you, it is now coming right for you. And yeah, it's personal. Yeah. It's and and it's like, Hey, that's the classic filmmaker thing to do. It super works. um, And it creates a lot of impact. Right, like I again, I feel mm-hmm. like even when I'm watching the tidal wave swoop through New York in a lateral way, I'm like, mm-hmm. wow, you know what I mean? Like you really stop and go, wow. I think it still <clears> it's still really literally works. one of the first tricks um, be- we figured out when we created moving images. You know, right. like great train robbery. People are like, ah, the train's gonna fucking kill me, or the guy pointing the gun at you, and people going like, this is. I know it's all make them up, but it's still very uneasy. Yeah. Like, I didn't like a gun pointed at me. Now we don't give a shit because it's like, it's part of our visual. We're used know, to it. Uh, yeah. Visual lexicon. But like, ultimately, yeah, there are these tactics still do work to a lot of extent. They still work, even if the effect is a little muted. And I think the use of contrast here also shows you a lot about what directors do as like in a sleight of hand. Like he's, he uses one entire set of language as a prep mm-hmm. and then he switches right. it right when the big right when the big action thing hits and it's like oh you feel the impact of that switch um right right and yet it never feels like a different movie uh so you know there's a lot of talent going here uh now i think this is an interesting contrast to look at that right all that sort of like visual metaphorical work and then contrast what inconvenient truth did to prepare uh, the audience for the facts that they were going to deliver. So the beginning of Inconvenient Truth, aside from like the Al Gore story, which is, you know, I think less important. Uh, the beginning is they start with a satellite picture of planet Earth and it was taken by the Apollo and it, like they show the first ever one and then they show the most popular one ever. And it, that seems like a very simple, maybe even sentimental idea. But why do they do it? Because, and I think you can't help but feel this, when you look at planet Earth, from space and realize, hey, well, here we are. 
just a rock hurtling through space, you mm. get a very visceral feeling of, wow. Right? Like, it's it's very awe-inspiring, and it's very beautiful. It's just a thing that we all connect to. Uh, the beauty and the awe of the world we live on is a natural, fundamental human experience, and it's primal, right? And ultimately, in order to make anything emotionally efficient, uh, you need to draw on primal human experiences because they are the tent poles that make the engine run. You know, like, this is a thing they teach you mm-hmm. in film school, and it never stops mm-hmm. being true. And so Inconvenient Truth's like, well, how about we go to the source of all this, planet Earth, the place you love, the place we all, in our guts, love, it's in danger. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's very effective. And like, what's fascinating <clears throat> about that, I'm sorry, I know you want to say something. Go for it. No. Uh, oh, I just wanted to say the, the the thing that you're talking about is an actual cognitive effect by astronauts. Mm-hmm. They talked about it. It's called the overview effect, and it doesn't extend to just... It's like seeing something in overview, seeing the table of contents of reality. Um, I just thought that's that cool. Was, yeah, you're absolutely right. And we have like said it's a thing. That's great. Uh, now, just so you don't think I'm like flying in with a different idea to like fix Roland Emmerich's film, Roland Emmerich also used this in Day After Tomorrow, but he used it at the end. So at the end, right after all this stuff has happened, we go back to space with the astronauts, and what do we see? The i like the the uh, the glacier, changed yeah, the changed planet. Yeah. Now this is the new stasis. So instead of having the awe and the beauty of it, there's kind of a feeling of tragedy that he wants to leave us with. Now mm-hmm. it's just interesting to me that that's what he chose to do because the way that he introduces the subject for us is to give us this like swooping i think partially or maybe entirely cg shot of the arctic glaciers which are pretty standard like cool like ooh you know flying through the through the arctic uh stuff and it is cool but he skipped like the core of what makes us care about this which is mm-hmm. it's not fear it's love it's love for the planet that make that is like the motivator and he has to basically replace that with this father-son dynamic that sort of is the emotional core of his movie, right? So Mm -hmm. now I'm not saying that having a father-son dynamic is bad. It's not bad. It's good. Uh, We've talked about a lot of films on this podcast where like, hey, sneakily, these action films are actually family movies. So I don't have a problem Mm -hmm. with him doing that here, but um, it's intriguing to think that The Inconvenient Truth kind of had a more direct and more effective setup for the emotions of their story. And it was much simpler. And Roland Emmerich is like sort of struggling to find, I'm going to put struggling in quotes, sort of laboring to create those same effects through a bunch of different dramatization methods when he could very easily Mm -hmm. have just started with planet earth. You know, he could have started there and like it works. We care. Uh, So I just Mm -hmm. find that very interesting. Um, also, by the way, the last line of that of the movie is like, "Have you ever seen the air so clear?" Uh, <laughs> like, it's very talking about the cold indifference yeah, right, of nature. Right, right. Yeah. It's very preachy, but like again, it seems very clear to me that Roland Emmerich understood that at the end of the day, the beauty of planet Earth is the motivator, like is the thing that gets the right. audience out of their chair. And mm-hmm. but he kind of uses it to mixed effect here. As more like cautionary tale, right? As a, a yeah, kind of slap on the wrist of like, here, here, here is Mother Earth correcting 
are like a like a literal mother slapping her wrists saying like don't do right. that you stop it i'm gonna correct you um and that's the uh that's the cautionary tale yeah and it's not um, that that's a wrong thing to do it's just that like and I, I i like parable movies but like i think again the simplicity of the inconvenient truth is actually uh it's an easy thing to overlook how simple it is to do this primal hey man this is what this movie's about stuff uh, but like you do have to do it. It's why a lot of movies that have like bad romance plots, it just feels very tacked on. But then once in a while you have a movie that does the same romance plot beats like in an action movie or whatever. And yet it really works. You know, like again, uh, like uh, die hard is a good example of that. Or just, I think even mm. lethal weapon, lethal weapon has a great family plot, uh, all the way through it. That really matters. Um, and then a bunch of movies that mm. imitate are like, oh yeah, and then he has a wife and then he has a kid and you don't care, right? Because they like don't, they didn't believe in the primal thing, but we still do as a movie audience. So um, anyway, I, I, that's a, that's a pulpit I like to get behind all the time. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, you know, I love it. Uh, so yeah, yeah, so yeah. look, like, let me just like wrap it up here. Uh, in hindsight, I personally appreciate what Roland Emmerich's trying to do with this movie. Because he's willing to he's willing to risk his career a little bit for this cause. I really admire that. Like, uh, I think it's good for cinema in general to take on uh, issues like this and to take stands on issues like this. Because we do, as a country and as a just globe, need to think about these issues. And movies are one of the big avenues for thought like that. Um, I don't even think it's a bad thing per se to take bombastic swings. Uh, on issues to sell movie tickets when when there are exposure deficits, right? When like people may not be thinking about this issue as much. Uh, this may not be an example of that, but I don't have a. I'm not like principally like no a blockbuster should never exist about this topic. I don't. I don't think that. I think it's possible for to do a good job of that. But I think it's really instructive for myself, for all people who are interested in making films or listening to this podcast to consider that like there are actually simple evocative ways to do exposition and to do, to set up stories with complicated themes like this that don't require really sexy, big bombastic decision-making. Like sometimes it is easier to show a, a picture of planet earth or to show a graph. Sometimes that is a more powerful tool and like don't shrink back from doing it because it's simple and obvious. You know, sometimes like, hey, man, uh, use the simple thing that works instead of trying to manufacture the same effect and show off how good you are at it. You know, even Roland Emmerich, mm -hmm. uh, as talented and capable and accomplished as he is, could stand to be simpler from time to time. So, uh, yeah, that's my argument. I uh, yeah. No, I I think there's a lot of really good things to be said. I, I yeah. Uh, good argument, man. There's. Emmerich is something I think we don't give credit to Emmerich for. And I think you acknowledge very well. And I kind of want to expound on it. Um, Roland Emmerich's like superpower, I think is like, I really meant it when I said it at the very top of this podcast, he's like, a f uh, scale is his bag. Yeah. He is the filmmaker of scale. Yeah, absolutely. He, he's very good at, he's very tuned to the appropriateness of every moment. Uh, 
for how you sh- where you put the camera and that's the job of a director ultimately he's there's a reason he became like an there's a reason like he and like other people like Michael Bay and other like people who like found were the foundational like pens in a language of like, okay, we do that when we want to show that. Or that's like how the genre shows visually these types of things occur. Like, um, and he's very good at it. Not only does he work with miniatures, so he's literally filmmaking wise, if we want to talk about tactics, very effective at creating, something very small to look very big yeah, <laughs> or vice really versa. Is. Like he, he knows that he knows just fundamentally that the toolkit and the, the tool that he's using, uh, the camera and its lens, how to manipulate the image in order to make you think it looks like something and that has nothing to do with like the Luma narrative of like him making stories about that. But it's just something to add is that he's, he obviously pays attention. To I think it. he's, uh, I, but like, I think he's also kind of like, he does a pretty good job with telling like basic human survival stories. Like, like, yeah, like they're and inoffensive it, yeah. and they work. You know what I mean? Like, like, yeah, I think he's got some weird politics too. Sure. Um, and there's some real old guy, like old world, especially with women in his films. But yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Let, that's like let an I guess let another podcast talk about that. I feel like most people we're talking to already think about this with Roland Emmerich anyway. Like, yeah. Uh, but in terms of the directorial perspective and how he kind of navigates the space, uh, there's a. I keep bringing up old. I guess we both do. We keep bringing up old director piece theater topics like, um, like, or movies like speed. There's a, there's a section in speed, uh, that it's like literally Yonda Bond is like taking from Roland Emmerich, right? which is that there's a sequence where Jeff Daniels is a uh, spoilers for speed. Uh, he's at, uh, uh, Hopper's uh, Dennis Hopper's like um, house and he like opens up and realizes that ah oh, it's a ruse he planted a bomb and I'm dead there's like this moment right where mm-hmm. Harry yep. uh, dies yep. from the bomb and the way and y- usually when people present when you imagine that segment and if you haven't seen speed I bet you can still recall like this sh- this one cut which is that it's a shot of pretty extreme close-up of uh of his face and he's like oh fuck basically is the expression then it cuts to a wide shot exterior and you see the house blow up right that's a very simple tactic yep. I know what's about to happen it happened yep and to present those with here's a close up to get you into the moment of pre death and be like oh what a tragedy to set you up with the punchline of and then the tragedy happened and we're outside looking in we're as distant as we can be it's just another statement it's just a house blowing up but because you gave me the shot that preceded it it now becomes an effective sequence Roland Emmerich basically created this shit. He basically was like the first director to do that tactic, and he does it in every single one of his movies. Really, it's every time there's a huge explosion, it's preceded by a shot of someone's face. Yeah, like the, like the Why? surprise. Why? Because he wants to connect yeah. you. Because he's dealing with scale. What's very what Roland Emmerich is very good at is the ability to say that jumping between scales from the middle distance to the wide distance to the close distance, those each embedded within themselves because of your connection to the subject have a different thing to say are you neutral 
are you with them or are you outside of them? And that's a fundamentally obvious kind of, you know, that's that seems like very organic and true all the time with filmmaking. Roland Emmerich understands this and he cuts consistently with that in mind. He's a filmmaker of scale. That's why he makes these sweeping things. Is he really, that's his thing he wants to do is talk about scale. And he does it in all his movies. And so when you brought up the, um, you know, the, the, the pale blue dot stuff uh, where you're seeing mm-hmm. the world or mm-hmm. like the overview effect, very effective uh, as a filmmaking tool. Why? Because it's a, <laughs> it's fundamentally something that happens to people. When they look at something with the distance, they go, oh shit. This is silly or, oh shit, this is much more amazing and look at the majesty of it. Like you have different realizations with it. What was important and necessary for you to have that breakthrough was the distance from which you perceived it. So, yeah, I agree with you. And I think he's very good at it. And he doesn't get enough He's great at jumping into an intimate moment and then out to, and then Mm -hmm. the whole building exploded. Uh, Right. Like Stargate had it. Like when we see Ra... Raw blows up, and then you cut to yep. the pyramid, blows up. Yep. Same thing as speed. I'm telling you, man. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I, it's all the same shit. We do the same kind of things over he, and over and over. He, uh, I mean, I'll never forget the first time I watched Independence Day in the theater because, like, like Titanic or like a lot of movies that did this kind of epic disaster thing, like, he found a lot of really great tiny little vignettes that uh, it's like, and then this person died, and then you meet them and see what they're mm-hmm. trying to do, and then they died. Like that's one of the things he's mm-hmm. just so good at uh, that does actually humanize tragedy on that scale. Like it is effective for that because otherwise, mm-hmm. you know, to to use sort of the exact opposite point I've been saying this whole episode, it is just a statistic that is not emotionally evocative, right? Like, and that's that's the yeah. that's the thing you never want to be as a disaster filmmaker or a scale filmmaker is like, and then the tidal wave went through imagine all those bodies. No, 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 man. We can't imagine. Ima- them. Yeah. We got to see them. We don't see right. them. Yeah. Uh, I, I, on that topic, cause that's a very good uh, distinction. I want to ask you the question you yeah. kind of alluded to before, which I yeah. think is good, which is, um, did you think that the movie by making it so loud, uh, and you know, kind of bombastic as you put right. it, move back the, thought process and the kind of acceptance of what his like fundamentally he's trying to say with it didn't move it back in the zeitgeist no. like i think no, not backwards you don't think not it backwards did. no you don't think it you think that people on balance when they came out of uh day after tomorrow were more worried about climate change than they were i don't know i think he didn't set it backwards i i think mm-hmm. that people who are worried about climate change that went to day after tomorrow did not stop mm-hmm. being worried about climate change. I So you don't think that the laughability that you also alluded to of people walking out of the theater and being like, that was so silly because they, you know, weren't ready for it, I right. guess, or whatever. It's not like it's speaking truth to power or something, but like, you know what I mean? Like they, because people were like, this is over the top. You don't think that that set. I don't know. Back. I mean, it, it, to me there, you can make the argument both ways. I mean, there's no data for either of these things. There's but absolutely like, no way for us yeah, to tell. But like you can make the argument either way. You can make the Lear's Fool argument too, right? Where it's like, look, this is the only palatable way we had to discuss it. So like just even putting it in mm. the theater at all and asking people to see it at all, just mm-hmm. the exposure to the ideas uh, might mm-hmm. have been uh, a net positive 
Because again, two years later, Inconvenient Truth actually shaped American perspective about this. And it's not like that movie exists in a vacuum. It doesn't. Right. So, I mean, I'm not saying that Day After Tomorrow is the reason Inconvenient Truth works at all. But I'm saying, like, Mm -hmm. if we're measuring how much this helped to hurt the cause, I can't really believe it hurt the cause that much. Because... uh, because very soon thereafter, the cause took a major step forward. You know? Yeah. I think that the, the proof is in, you know, the, pers- the perspective, the history, the scale, some could say. We now can look at back and say, yeah, it did. I mean, I can't say if we would have gone faster without the film. Right. Once again, these are all not data points. But I just think it's interesting to discuss at least, like, is it more important to get – is there such a thing as bad publicity, I guess? For, for is climate the, change. The end, what we're talking for about. For climate change in 2004, I think the answer was no. Mm. Uh, I, I think, think so. I think, And I think you're right to bring up the context. I think you're right to say in that time with those kind of parameters and that thing happening, it was a good thing in, uh, you know, on balance. And I think you're right about that. I think that – answers my questions so yeah i mean you know again i have the benefit of being 17 years in the future uh and knowing that mm-hmm. uh I'm, I'm about to experience a summer where 100 degree days are going to be part of it pretty regularly mm-hmm. uh you know mm-hmm. and, and uh where there's going to be hurricanes you know soon like the, like stuff that seemed impossible is going to happen right so uh, right uh, some people know this about me. I'm pretty into environment, like in learning about the environmental quote unquote mm-hmm, debate mm-hmm. Uh, about like what's going on. And I got it because I had like most of us, like you have a teacher who is just so good. One of those teachers that was just so good was my AP environmental science teacher. Uh, point being that right at the, t- like I was coming off of that class. That was like when I was like a senior this is 2004 and I like graduated from like high school in like 2003 or whatever it was. And so, uh, I'm like still, I'm like got an ax to grind, crazy environmentalist. I remember coming out of this movie and being kind of pissed, uh, being like, they really did it dirty. And like, I felt I wasn't like gonna, I wasn't militant about it. I guess I wasn't like pissed off to the point of doing something or I just kind of was like, fuck that movie a little bit because they like, they're making it look laughable and silly and like it could never happen because it's such a fictionalization of like the real shit is like it had it involved there. But then it like, as I was doing research for this, the, the last director piece theater that I did, which was the uh, twister one, uh, there's meteorologists who were just they were interviewing meteorologists or like Bill Paxton was saying, he was talking to some meteorologists or weather men and women after Twister. Cause it was such a, you know, zeitgeisty film. And he said almost unanimously the the response was like, cause he was like, I felt like it was really stupid. Like when I pick up the sand and I'm like, look at this fucking thing. Like, I think that, uh, I'm setting you guys back. I'm making you guys look foolish. And he, and they were like almost unanimously, nah, man, we are really excited uh, to be in a movie, you know, like our profession is never in movies. So it's the representation matters. And I think that that's right because I, for one was a kid who like got into like learning what the clouds were named because of Twister. So I think a lot, like you were saying, can be said about day after tomorrow in terms of climatologists, probably young climatologists, soon to be climatologists watch that film. We're like, I'm fascinated by it for some reason. And then they go and research and find the real stuff. It's why it's good to not 
it's good to have tempered outrage about impact. Like it's good to like it's good to like remember that you don't necessarily understand exactly all the outworkings of how a thing will impact people, especially about media. Like media outrage often tends to be uh, a little reactionary and then like the long story is usually different than how people feel in the timeline you know uh maybe not usually often just often it happens a lot like you know for instance mm-hmm. people were very upset about gun violence in the matrix right like that was a thing that right. you know uh people were in a rush to blame that stuff on the matrix and i and in, like now in hindsight that just seems like a laughable viewpoint right but at the time that was a very heated like, should we even be letting this happen? You know, like, and I don't. Right. I, yeah. I, I just think whenever we presume to know exactly how the outworkings are going to work out from a movie on culture, mm-hmm. it's, uh, you know, just just a grain of salt is all I'm saying. Not not don't not don't ever predict, but just like, you know, time has a way of sort of uh, reshaping our opinions about that stuff. That's why everybody has the argument. Don't have the Academy Awards the year that the movies came out. Wait five years, you know, cause like, you don't really know. Do you like hall of famer style? Yeah. I, I mean, it, hall of fame is a better indicator bladed. of whether or not a thing has quality. Like, you know, like, uh, right, right. It's not, I mean, again, uh, right. So this is a totally different topic, but like, yeah, I understand. Like, I probably would have been one of the people on your side of this, Abe, in 2004, who just been like, this movie is worse mm-hmm. than if it didn't exist at all. And, uh, you know, because because I already have the feelings I have about it, so I'm just reacting to the fear that people won't have those feelings and that, you know, there's any reason for them not to have it as a bad thing. And it's like... It just dies. Yeah, and, yeah, and, you're, and it's like, but you don't like know. Sleep. Yeah. You know, you really don't know that that's what the impact's going to be. Um, I don't know. I'm, uh, you know, I, I'm a big fan of, uh, I'm a big fan of trying to retain some sense of the fact, like, of self awareness about how time bound we all are. Uh, I think that's mm-hmm. a really good thing to hold on to, especially when you're evaluating how art works. You know, like, uh, like, weren't most of the great, for instance, like painters rejected in their time, right? Isn't that like a thing that you always hear? Like, Van Gogh was rejected in his time, and like, uh, this is true. Yeah, a lot, a lot of them. I, some of them, no, yeah, some of them, no. Yeah. Like Picasso, no. You, you yeah. get it as a, it's enough that it's a right. thing. So you know, maybe we don't assume that when a day after tomorrow comes out, it's setting environmentalism back. I'm not reacting to your question mm-hmm. now. I'm reacting to the way that. You know those narratives existed in two thousand four, right? Nor am I. I'm not saying I'm. I was yeah. right in no, the instance. Not. I think I've tempered my opinion by that. But it was a reaction that I had because of, I think the the context of the thing that I couldn't see out of. It's just you know my perception was nullified by the fact that I was in it. Yeah, in I mean, moment. and also movie like movie impact <laughs> is such a is such an amorphous. Uh, thing like it's it's such a it's a thing that runs through your hands when you try to grab it like you know do you think alexander payne thought that the biggest impact of the movie sideways would be to kill the merlot industry like you think that's what is that what he set out to do no man he just made a he's making a wisecrack uh Mm -hmm. it's a butterfly effect right i mean like or like the most famous example is you think upton sinclair set out when he wrote the jungle to reform the meatpacking industry no 
you know, uh, I don't know. This is like judging impact of things and getting outraged, which is a thing that we do a lot, is a little bit tire catching his mm. tail, in my opinion, uh, as a, I guess, a skeptic of human accuracy when it comes to perception. Sure. sure. I do think Upton Sinclair did think that, though, because he was a, he, he, he was, was mad activist. that it became about. Uh, he was trying to, as, as right, I right. recall, so you're saying it undermines history. Yeah, yeah. He was okay. trying to, uh, like, incite people's anger about working conditions for the worker, and instead they got really mad about mm. meatpacking practices. <laughs> and it was like, that's not what I, you know. Right, right, right. So, yeah, it's just not seeing right. the right thing. Uh, I, I misunderstood what you're saying. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, yeah. But, you know, sometimes you kind of just have to be the... Uh, the centrist that Roland Emmerich is. And just he is a centrist. Hold up a mirror. All, Very much also, so. Also, just forgive me. Yeah. Like, this is a fascinating element that I kind of threw out of this episode because I didn't know how to exactly comment on it. But, like, Roland Emmerich made uh-huh. this movie a couple years after 9 11. Like, yes. and he got heat for that. He got a lot of heat for that. Dude, but, and I don't think, I mean, for making the gesture. Yes, I think you should kind of get heat for it, but like also, uh, do you remember the years of 2001 to 2006? Uh, this was an age of this, um, all movies. We were like fascinated with the destruction right. of it, only made his career stronger. I mean, you know what I mean? Yes, I do. Like, I, I like, I recognize it. This, that's also kind of a no publicity is bad publicity type of thing. Where it's like right. destroying New York yeah. just gets us into the theater, whether it's cynical or not. Uh, and that's not great. It's just so, like, it's just, it's more of a response to, like, what culturally we went through when we, you know, when you have, like, a, you know, country morning, I guess, they they think of some fucked up shit. But see, that's, uh, and that's then fascinating to me. Hollywood regurgitates it back at them and they go like, okay, yeah, that's the thing that we, we got to like now. And then it's just this weird, like you said, snake eating its but own tail. That's fascinating to me because then you could say that Roland Emmerich essentially is like looking forward to our next big cultural or what he perceives to be our <laughs> next big, if I would go our next big that. cultural <laughs> crisis. And I think he's just, Rolling right, right. with the punches. I think so too. But he, but think about this. He's he understands climate change is a ways yeah. off, right? So how does he express the danger by by? And I mean this in like I hopefully not a completely sarcastic way. Like uh, he 9-11s it, right? He puts it in nine eleven language so mm-hmm. that we all like, mm-hmm. oh, it's like that. Like he oh, puts it in the language 9/11. of the day, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Even though he, all of his explosions and like his like bag of tricks, as I was saying yeah. earlier, his you know explosions of scale uh, predates nine eleven. Uh, it's it's kind of like a guy who's like, ooh, ooh, I got the perfect thing for this. Uh, even though he's not making nine eleven tales, like, but he is. But natural disasters movies and the genres entirely is predicated on the idea of people being fascinated by looking at wide scale devastation. And at the same time, we're looking for weapons of mass destruction. It's, it's almost, you're not wrong to point out how comical it is. I, I I mean, 2021 Adam does not find this movie offensive. Uh, Like I don't, or or even like the transgressions of the time to be that offensive, but like I might feel very differently if I lived in New York. You know what I mean? Like if I lived in New York, I might be like, "Hey man, take it easy." 
You know, like I get it, but like also take it easy. Like I've seen enough. Uh, three you weren't years here, ago, man. Yeah, you know what I mean. You weren't here. <laughs> yeah, it, it was. It was. No, it was yeah. hard. Uh, so and I don't blame people who have that experience for reflecting that experience. Uh, yes. If they don't have that experience and they're concerned about it on behalf of other people, I'm like, well, let's let them talk for themselves. You know, if they're let, let them have sure. that, let them say that. I think there are people who will say that. Though so. I think so too. So and if that's yeah, enough, those people, it's like, yeah, man, I I wouldn't I wouldn't like that either if I was you. Hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that's another blindness uh, of Hollywood blockbusters, which seems to be a trend of this show now. Uh, we seem to point out the blind, the blind spots of Hollywood. Well, like we don't already. Right, right, right. Know I mean, like it's easy for us to do because we're, uh, we're filmmakers, independent filmmakers who have not had to manage this kind of budget or scale, uh, who've made a living, right, yeah, made a living true. at commenting on movies. You know, yeah. So like. It's easy for us to be like, why'd you make it like that? Right. That's why don't you inconvenient truth it? You know, two years in the future, t- they did that. I could have made it better. I could have made it better. <laughs> I love that you're saying this because I know in your heart, because if your heart's anything like mine, once in a while when you've heard people's comments on your work and you're just like, oh yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, you just have this like, you have that instant reaction. <laughs> and I just love to think of Roland Emmerich sitting around listening to this and being like, Oh yeah, okay, man. I'm gonna travel forward in time and take inconvenient truths tactics mm-hmm. and fix my movie. How about you make a fucking movie? Mm-hmm. How about that, man? Yeah. How about that? And he's not. <laughs> how about wrong you make about a that. fucking Godzilla? And how I'll... about you do it? <laughs> Be like, well, yeah. fair enough. And uh, fair enough. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right about that, Roland Emmerich. I'm also uh, uh, my representation <laughs> <Yeah>. is. <laughs> If I just you have a Godzilla, know, I will make it. Uh. Yeah, uh, yeah. I just want everyone to, to to know what my representation is, just in case you need to know. You know, you know. If you would like me to prove how right I am by giving me a Godzilla, I don't even know I will my do own. That. Hold on, I don't. I didn't even remember the name of my own representation just then. I was going to use it for a joke, and I can't even recall what their name. Oh, I I know who it is, but do what you actually want to talk about it? No, okay. I, don't get, I can't believe I can't remember it. God damn it! You're, I'm you're, such a pe- I'm the worst. I'm the worst filmmaker, man. Boys at Schifrin. There it is. Yeah, now I recall. Schifrin <laughs> management. Schifrin. That's them. <laughs> I was gonna use that for a Give joke. A I ring. couldn't even remember. Hire your hire your favorite. Uh, I, crack I know those guys. I know their names. It's not like they're not important to me. I just couldn't remember it in the yeah. moment that I was like, uh. Yeah, like I jumped into that joke with the assumption that it was going to fly to your head, and yet that's just like, so fucking everyone, funny. I, I mean, the that's the thing about the pandemic. F everyone's eye is like it's taken away. It's yeah. taken away words from you. <laughs> like you just can't remember words well, now. I like, literally haven't been able to think about it for yeah. over a year because what the fuck's right. going on? That's right. We've been we've been you living know? in the L.A. library cooking books for a year and a half. That's going to change, baby. That's going to change because I, I got. I, I don't know. If you heard, but I got a I got a line to uh, Roland Emmerich, <laughs> so I'm thinking I might talk to him well, a little Abe bit. Abe and I would both <laughs> like to thank our managers at Schifrin Management. Uh, we love you guys. Uh, can't wait to see the can't wait to see the work you get us. Can't wait. We're excited. And if you don't listen to this, well, that's on you guys. <laughs> Ha ha ha!
This has been a Small Beans Endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The Beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash smallbeans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash smallbeans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the Small Beans grow into huge, giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you!